The following message is brought to you by MacArthur Boulevard Baptist Church. We are many stories made one family by one gospel. If you would like to connect with us, please check out our website at MacArthurBoulevard.org. Go ahead and be seated this morning. And as you are, I would invite you to open up your Bible and find the book of Ezra this morning. Chapter 1, the book of Ezra. Chapter 1, we're going to launch a a new series, uh, Walking Through the Book of Ezra, a series that, Lord willing, will take us through the summer, uh, finishing up probably, roughly, somewhere in August. We'll see how this goes, but we're going to introduce Ezra to you this morning um, by looking at chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, which is going to help us to place Ezra within the context of the overall narrative of the scriptures, all right? So Ezra 1, verses 1 through 4, and in order to get you ready for Ezra this morning, I want you to, uh, to imagine with me for just a moment that God built a theater, Okay, and within this theater, all of the heavenly hosts are the audience. And the earth is his stage. And on this stage, God is going to dramatize his glory. You see, the production began when God planted a little garden off on one segment of the stage. And he said that this would be the place where his manifest presence would dwell. And he put two people in that garden. These were his people placed in his garden in order to enjoy his presence and to worship him and to serve him. They were told to be fruitful and multiply so that they would literally fill the entire stage with his glory. But instead, God's people, Adam and Eve were led into an insurrection. They rebelled against God. And as a result, they lost the privilege of God's presence. They were ultimately put out, exiled from the garden. From there, sin was multiplied generation after generation, culminating in the sons of Adam coming together to build a city, a city that would come to be known as Babylon. Sometimes referred to as Babel. And it was within the city that they would erect a a tower in an ultimate act of rebellion against their creator. In fact, Babylon would become throughout this drama the face of a kingdom that is set up against the kingdom of the Lord God. But something absolutely incredible happens in the very next scene. Right after Babylon is built in rebellion to God, God graciously makes a promise, a covenant promise to an undeserving character named Abram. That from Abram, God would create a new people. A new people for himself, and he would restore this new people back to a place where they could again enjoy him and worship in his presence. God did indeed make Abraham into a people, into a vast nation known as Israel. 
You see, Israel had found themselves living as slaves in Egypt when God raised up a leader named Moses who would lead out in God's redemption of his people. This was, of course, known as the Exodus. When God brought his people out of slavery and restored them back to a special place. That, that, that special place for Israel was a segment of land that God gave to Israel. He even led Israel to build a tabernacle and then a temple in that land that would in many ways resemble that original garden because it would be there in the temple that God would once again dwell in his very presence. And God allowed his people to come and to worship him there at the temple, just as they had done previously in the garden. And so God's people, who had been living in exile, were now restored to a place where God's presence dwelt. But you see, God told his people from the very beginning that they had to obey the words of the covenant that he had established with them, that if they obeyed the covenant, that they could remain there in that special place and enjoy his presence and the blessing of worship. But in the day that they disobeyed the covenant, that God would once again remove them from the special place, just as he'd done in Genesis chapter 3, and he would send them into exile. Well, as the story unfolds, the people of Israel inevitably repeat the mistakes of Adam and Eve. They again rebel against God. They abandon him to embrace the foreign gods of the nations around them. And so God, faithful to his word, exiles his people once again. Just like Genesis 3, people were, God's people were removed from the special place where they could enjoy his presence and were enslaved again by a foreign nation. Now here's the question. Which nation would God use to render and execute judgment against his people? Well, wouldn't you know, it was none other than the infamous Babylon. The nation that had become the poster child for a kingdom of this world that is set up against the kingdom of God. In this instance, Babylon became God's instrument of carrying out judgment against Israel. And so now, God's people, listen, were living in a second exile and were in need of a second exodus. And the question looming on stage is, would God once again restore his people to the special place where his presence dwells in order to worship him there? Church, this is, this is exactly where we find ourselves within the drama of scripture as we enter the book of Ezra. Now, of course, this drama is nothing less than real human 
history, right? Everything I've just mentioned, from God planting a garden and creating Adam and Eve and putting them there to their exile, to the creation and formation of Israel, and their exodus to their Babylonian exile, all of these events really happened in time and space. They were historical events that took place in this world. But guys, when you think about history... It's really important that you don't look at the events of history as if they just came about by some random chance, but that instead you allow the scriptures to give you the right interpretation of those events. Okay? The Bible is history, but it's not merely history. It's also an interpretation of history that allows us as the people of God to see the world around us rightly. Guys, this this is important. If you try to make sense of the events and the people and all the ongoings of this world around you apart from the perspective or, or the worldview, or the meta-narrative, as it's sometimes referred to, of the scriptures, not only will it lead you astray in your mind, it will lead you ultimately to a place of despair within your spirit. Okay, the book, the book of Ezra not only gives us all of the historical information of Israel being restored to the promised land, But it helps us to see the God who is at work behind the scene. And and how all of these events that actually took place in history in the 5th and 6th centuries B.C. How these events play into the grand narrative of what God is ultimately doing in this world a narrative that continues even to this day okay so so this is the setting for the book of Ezra you've got God's people Israel they're because of their sin against God they were living as an enslaved people in exile enslaved by the Babylonians, and they were now, once again, in need of restoration. Okay, and to, and to introduce this initial chapter to you in, in Ezra, I, I want you to see a key theme that is particularly woven into the first four verses of chapter 1. The theme is simply this. That God always keeps his promise. That's the theme. God always keeps his promise. I want you to look with me. Chapter 1 beginning there in verse 1. And let's look just at the very first phrase of verse 1. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia. Now stop right there. Where did did Persia come from? I, I I thought it was the Babylonians that had taken Israel captive. Well, guys, that in itself, when you understand all of the background behind that one phrase, 
is in itself an incredible demonstration of God's faithfulness to always keep his promise. Here's what happened, all right? The Babylonian exile took place. In fact, the Babylonian exile of the nation of Judah took place in multiple waves. The first wave took place in 605 B.C. when many of the um, uh, Israelites were removed from their homes and taken uh, into exile there in, in Babylon. There was another wave of exile that happened in 597 B.C. But the key date, the date that I want you to remember, is 586 B.C. Because it was in 586 B.C. that The Babylonian exile was considered complete because it was in 586 B.C. that the temple in Jerusalem was actually destroyed. The temple, the place where God's presence dwelt, destroyed. But before all of this happened, before Babylon ever invaded Judah, God actually promised through the prophet Jeremiah that all of this was going to take place. I want you to see this. Jeremiah chapter 25, beginning in verse 11. This is before Babylon ever invades. God says this to his people. He says, this whole land will become a desolate ruin. And these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. When the 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation. This is the Lord's declaration. The land of the Chaldeans, that is Babylon, For their iniquity, and I will make it, Babylon, a ruin forever. Okay? So, before Babylon ever invaded Judah, God actually promised that he was going to use Babylon to judge his people by taking them captives into exile. And then afterwards, he promised that he was actually then going to judge Babylon for their iniquity of destroying his people. And he was going to do that by raising up another nation to destroy Babylon, just as he had raised up Babylon to destroy Judah. Okay? So Babylon ultimately conquered Israel in 586 B.C., and then, one generation later, 539 B.C., God raises up a nation known as Persia, led by a king named Cyrus, and Persia invaded Babylon and destroyed Babylon just like God said would happen. Guys, God always keeps his promise. Now, once Persia conquered Babylon... All the nations that had been under Babylonian rule were now under Persian rule, including Judah, which is why King Cyrus of Persia is on the scene here in verse 1. Now, what's even more amazing than all of that is that God not only promised that he would use Babylon to destroy Judah and then would destroy Babylon, all of which took place, just like the prophet Jeremiah said it would take place, but God also promised, this time to the prophet Isaiah, that it would be this King Cyrus who would issue a decree for the exiles of Israel to be released, to return, to rebuild Jerusalem, and ultimately to rebuild the temple of God there. And guys, he made that promise not in some 
vague or overly generalized manner, he actually calls Cyrus by name. And he did so 200 years before Persia was ever on the scene. Look at this, Isaiah chapter 44, beginning in verse 28. 200 years before Cyrus, before Persia. This is what the Lord says. The Lord says, he says, who says to Cyrus, my shepherd, he will fulfill all my pleasure. And says to Jerusalem, she will be rebuilt. And of the temple, its foundation will be laid. Chapter 45, verse 1 says, the Lord says this to Cyrus, his anointed whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and disarm kings to open doors before him and even city gates will not be shut. Guys, Isaiah prophesied this in 740 B.C. He said a guy, a king named Cyrus, who wasn't even alive yet, would be like God's shepherd he would be like God's anointed one to fulfill his purposes by subduing certain nations and that through Cyrus, God would issue a decree for Jerusalem and for the temple to be rebuilt. This was 740 B.C. and almost exactly 200 years later in 538 B.C. This is what we read in Ezra chapter 1 verse 1. In the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah, the Lord roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue a proclamation throughout the entire kingdom and to put it in writing, a detail which is going to become really important later in the story. Verse 2, now this is the proclamation of Cyrus. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and has appointed me to build him a house at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you, may his God be with him, may he go to Jerusalem in Judah and build the house of the Lord, the God of Israel, the God who is in Jerusalem. Verse 4, let every survivor, wherever he resides, be assisted by the men of that region with silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with a freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Okay, so this decree called for the release of the Israelites living in exile. As many as wanted to return could return, and they were to rebuild the temple of the Lord. Cyrus issued this decree... Just like God said that Cyrus would 200 years prior. Why? Because God always keeps his promise. Now you come into Ezra and you might think, well, I guess Cyrus had converted and become a follower of Yahweh. Like, is that why he issued this decree for the temple of Yahweh to be rebuilt? Because, you know, he had come to believe in Yahweh. Well, most likely, no, that's not the reason. In fact, a major archaeological discovery took place in the 19th century um, when the Cyrus Cylinder was discovered. 
the Cyrus cylinder was a clay barrel with inscriptions on it that demonstrated that this King Cyrus actually made a lot of these types of proclamations about the nations that were under Persian rule. Uh, so he did this regularly, that these nations under his rule could go and be afforded a certain amount of religious freedom, that they could rebuild whatever shrine or temple that they needed to worship so that they could worship the God of whatever nation that they are a, a, a part of. So, so Cyrus probably didn't convert to become a follower of Yahweh here. You see, from, from Cyrus's perspective, this is simply a wise political move. Remember, the Persians were uh, polytheistic. And so the mentality was, listen, there's all these gods out there. These nations that we're defeating, they've got these gods. We don't want to tick off any of these gods. Uh, and so let's try to appease these gods by allowing their people to go and, and to worship them freely so that maybe we can reap the blessing of whatever god this nation has okay and so he's thinking let's do Yahweh a favor by releasing his people to rebuild the temple reestablishing the worship of Yahweh so that maybe Yahweh will do us a favor okay so this is Cyrus's perspective from his perspective he's thinking I'm in control here and I'm going to do Yahweh a favor in order to manipulate a blessing from the Lord but that's not the interpretation that the biblical author gives us of the situation, is it? Guys, again, the Bible helps us to interpret the event. It pulls back the curtain to allow us to see what's actually happening here. Cyrus is not the one in control here. God is. In fact, Cyrus is simply a servant, an instrument in God's hand to bring about the purposes of God. And we see that in the text. Look back at verse 1. It says, it was the Lord who roused the spirit of King Cyrus to issue this proclamation. And this was done, it tells us in verse 1, to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken through Jeremiah. Guys, this is just like it says in Proverbs 21.1. A king's heart is like channeled waters in the Lord's hands. He directs it wherever he chooses. Okay, God is directing Cyrus's heart like channeled water here. Why? Because God always keeps his promise. Okay, now one more, one more feature in this passage I need you to see before we can think about how this applies to us today. It's clear in this passage that what God is doing here in Ezra is not simply keeping a random promise that he had made years prior. He's actually remembering the covenant that he had made with Abraham. Listen, he is initiating a second exodus here for his people who had been living in exile. 
Now remember, to execute the first exodus under Moses, what did God have to do? He had to harden Pharaoh's heart. And in order to execute this second exodus in Ezra, what is God doing? He is rousing Cyrus's heart. And do you remember how God funded the first exodus in Egypt? Remember, he stirred the hearts of all of the Israelite neighbors, all of the Egyptians, to give them silver and gold and goods so that they could go and worship the Lord their God. And how is God funding this second exodus? This is verse 4. Their neighbors were to give them, it tells us, silver, gold, goods, and livestock, along with the freewill offering for the house of God in Jerusalem. Guys, these parallels between the first exodus and the second exodus, these are intentional parallels. They're showing us that God is continuing a theme. Okay, He is continuing a pattern in this drama of history, a pattern, listen, of exile and restoration. Exile, restoration. Sin leads people to a place of exile but God promises to restore his people back to a place where they can enjoy him and worship in his presence forever. This is a theme you see repeated all through the Bible. So if you're wondering, how does a book like Ezra apply to us today? Like, what, 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 what does Ezra have to say to us today? I mean, we're not living in Babylon. Uh, we, we are not living under Persian rule. We're not trying to rebuild some temple building or, or structure. What does Ezra mean for us? Well, I'm going to show you in the coming weeks that Ezra has a lot of good things for God's people today, but perhaps most foundationally, it's by seeing this, this exile restoration pattern that began all the way back in Genesis and how that pattern is now continuing through Ezra. Because this is what we're going to find. And this is a bit of a spoiler. Is that the second exodus in Ezra, just like the first exodus under Moses, does not ultimately solve the problem of sin that leads to exile. God's people remain plagued by sin, which keeps them from experiencing the joy and worship of the presence of God. Okay, so we're going to come to the end of Ezra, still looking for this grand restoration, this grand reversal of Genesis 3. We're going to come to the end of Ezra still looking for this day in which God's people can be free from the oppression of sin and Satan and be restored back to a special place where they can enjoy and worship the presence of God forever. The first exodus was only a partial fulfillment of this ultimate restoration, pointing us forward. And the second exodus in Ezra is likewise only a partial fulfillment of this ultimate restoration pointing us 
forward, pointing us forward to the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And now let's think about this for a moment. Jesus was in the presence of God. And he left the presence of God in order to enter our exile. And on the cross, the scriptures tell us he paid with his own life the ransom that was needed to execute our redemption so that we could be set free from our slavery to sin and to Satan and be restored back to the presence of God. The the, the first exodus gave us a, a shadow of that reality. The proclamation of Cyrus here in the second exodus of Ezra is giving us a shadow of that reality and of that ultimate restoration. But here's the thing, that ultimate restoration that's being accomplished by Jesus is a far greater restoration than the one that we read about in Ezra because it's doing more for us than simply altering our external circumstances or moving us to a new geographical location. In this ultimate restoration, Jesus actually gets at the root of our sin problem, which is what caused exile in the first place by changing our hearts and he puts his presence in us. Now this is what we learn in the New Testament. We learn that this ultimate restoration takes place in two phases. In the first phase, Jesus came to secure our restoration and spiritually redeem us and set us free from slavery to sin and to Satan. But he does not immediately remove us from the environment of our exile. Guys, we're still living in the environment of exile. This is why Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says, We ourselves who have the Spirit as first fruits, we also groan within ourselves eagerly waiting for adoption, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. We're still waiting this ultimate redemption. This is why Peter says, 1 Peter chapter 1, this is why Peter refers to God's people as exiles, sojourners in a land that is not our own. Understand, church, we are at the same time free from sin's power, restored back into a right relationship with God, and yet at the same time we are not yet fully restored, but we hope in the ultimate and final restoration as we still live in the presence of sin as exiles in Babylon. You wonder why Babylon is so significant in the book of Revelation. We're still living in the exile of Babylon. And this is why the message of Ezra is so significant for us today. Ezra, particularly here at the very beginning of the book, shows us this simple truth. Ezra shows us that God will keep his promise to restore those living in exile. 
God will keep his promise. And there's a specific promise in mind in the book of Ezra. God will keep his promise to restore those living in exile. God was faithful to keep his promise to use Babylon to judge Israel. He was faithful to keep his promise leading them into exile. He was faithful to keep his promise to raise up Persia to then judge Babylon. He was faithful to keep his promise to move the heart of Cyrus to issue a decree for his people to be restored back to the land and to rebuild the temple. He did all of this remembering the promise he had made. Even though it's only a shadow of the greater restoration, we are reminded in Ezra that God will keep his promise to restore those of us living in exile. So I want to bring this to a close this morning by, by, by giving you three concrete exhortations, if I could, in light of that simple truth. All of that to build that truth. And I want to give you three exhortations in light of that truth. God will keep his promise to restore those living in exile. The first exhortation I have for you is this. Church, focus, focus on the God who is working behind the scene. As you're living in exile, focus on the God working behind the scene. You see, guys, when, when you're living as an, as an exile, it, it's really easy to start looking at the world around you, and the events of the world around you, and the people of the world around you, to start looking at the world around you through the same lens that lost people see the world, which is a lens that only focuses on the visible and the tangible and the temporal. Ezra demonstrates that behind real world events is a God who is sovereignly at work assuring that his purposes are fulfilled. Sometimes those purposes are aimed at judgment. Sometimes those purposes are aimed at blessing and protection. You see, whether it's Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon or Cyrus or Persia or, or any other world leader or person in authority, those in power usually think that they are the ones in ultimate charge of the state or the nation or of the world. But in reality, we know through the lens of Scripture that their hearts are like channeled waters in the hands of God. Okay, and so as, as God's people, when we see elections won and lost, as we see Supreme Court rulings handed down, as we see nations rise and nations fall, as we see pandemics come and pandemics go, as we see all of the events in the world around us, we can be confident that God is at work behind the scene. And, and he is moving all of human history toward our final and 
ultimate restoration. Okay, and so the exhortation is, yes, be informed of these things in exile, but don't be controlled by them. Okay, be engaged in the world, be engaged in the community of your exile, but don't be consumed with the cares of this world. Instead, focus your heart on the God working behind the scene. The second exhortation I give you is to fix your hope on God's ultimate restoration. Fix your hope on God's ultimate restoration. Guys, we're still living as exiles in a world that is not our home. We are hoping for a restoration that's not yet fully here or realized. And so, guess what? We're going to suffer. And we're going to hurt. And we're going to experience loss. And we're going to battle fear and depression and despair and so when these things happen in your life remember that God will keep his promise to restore those living in exile he is going Jesus is going to restore everything that we've lost Jesus is going to return Jesus will deliver us Jesus will wipe away Every tear that we've shed, Jesus will judge the evildoers and will establish perfect righteousness on earth. So don't hope in this world. Hear me. Don't fix your hope on some vain expectation that Babylon is one day going to get all this figured out and make everything right. Our hope is not found in Babylon. Our hope is found in the one who will return, removing us from Babylon, or better yet, removing Babylon from us and restoring us back to the ultimate temple garden of his presence. And so fix your hope on God's ultimate restoration. Finally, I leave you with this. Find redemption through God's ultimate restorer. Find redemption through God's ultimate restorer. This final exhortation is for those of you who have not yet received this restoration that comes from Christ Jesus. Understand, because of your sin, you are living outside of a right relationship with God. You are unable to enjoy the blessing of God's presence. Instead of relying upon Jesus for your salvation, you continue to rely upon yourself or what you bring to the table. Instead of yielding to him as king over your life, you continue to hold the reins, calling the own shots in your own life. When you're outside of Christ, there is ultimately despair and loneliness and fear and insecurity And most importantly, there's judgment. Because Jesus is returning to to judge those who have not yielded his life, their lives to him. But guys, he provides this gracious opportunity for you to experience redemption 
and restoration so that you're no longer enslaved to sin, but instead you're free to enjoy the presence and the goodness of God. And you can receive that restoration this very day through repentance and faith. Understand, you don't become a child of God through some random accident. Or just by being born into a Christian family, you start going to church as if you become a child of God through some act of osmosis. You become a child of God through repentance and faith in Christ.